0: This week, we welcome back author Gerald Brennan, who has just released another alternative history book called Alone on the Moon, a Soviet lunar odyssey. Yep,
1: and it's another in his Altered Space series, and this time he has put Alexei Leonov on the moon in May 1970.
0: Do you have a favorite fictional space book? Let us know on our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter. And at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website.
1: And please hit the share button if you enjoy what we talk about. But right now, enjoy episode 99 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to
0: Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney.
1: I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 99 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily?
0: I'm doing great. I can't believe it's episode 99. This is insane to I me. Know. Like, wow, I can't believe it's been almost two years.
1: It feels like yesterday that we started this, didn't it?
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago at all. It's just it's just very strange. Like, it's surreal. But it's good. It's a good feeling. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. And I'm very excited about what we'll see on next week's show.
1: Yeah, me too. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Literally, (laughs) who knows? Uh, Literally, who knows? (laughs) Um, Emily, I just want to say, I've... Read this article that you put up this week, and it's one of my favorite articles you've ever written. It was called Rattled by Thank the you. Rush Secrets and Lies on For All Mankind's Mars. Obviously, it contains spoilers for this season's For All Mankind, but I like the way you connected that with what happened in real life and showed the parallels of progress that existed socially, even though the technology progresses are so drastically different.
0: Yeah, I, I love the new season of For All Mankind. The last episode, episode six, I'm not going to try to provide any big spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it yet, but um, it it really delves into, you know, yeah, we have all this progress, you know, we got people on Mars, but socially things are still very much behind. People are not as socially progressive as you would think by that point. It got me to thinking the 90s really weren't as socially progressive as we thought they were back then, you know? They really were not, you know, there was a lot of sexism and homophobia back then. And and there were a lot of things that just were not acceptable at all back then. And really things weren't moving forward as much as I think we believe they were. So I wanted to sort of write about it because I was like, I think it's genius that the show is acknowledging that. And they they got a handle on that because I think a lot of people either were born in the 1990s and they don't know that or a lot of people lived it. You know, we lived it, but maybe we didn't see that as clearly as we should have probably back then because we were doing whatever, you know, we were busy or something like that. So I thought that was just a genius touch by For All Mankind that they're acknowledging that, yeah, the 1990s weren't so great after all, you
1: know? (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? You know, we're getting to that generation that looks back and goes, oh, the good old days of the 90s when everything was all right. Uh, But was it? And it's good to yeah. question that, isn't it? It's good to just kind of have a think. Actually, was it as good as we all think it was?
0: It's like when people look back at the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people are like, yeah, the 60s, man, things were so great. Music was awesome. And music was awesome. But there were a lot of things that kind of sucked back then. You know, there was not a lot of civil rights back then. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, when we get caught up in nostalgia, you tend to forget about certain things, I think.
1: Yeah, you can gloss over some of the the not-so-nice stuff, can't you? You can just... Be living in that moment anyway it's a great article and i will put Thank uh, you. a link in the show notes to that as always to check them out
0: and so let's move on and introduce this week's guest we had him on our podcast uh back on episode 54 and he's now released another book called alone on the moon a soviet lunar odyssey so we thought it was a great time to have jerry brennan back on the show
1: absolutely and for those of you who didn't listen to episode 54 Why not? Uh, Jerry has a bachelor's degree in European history from West Point and a master's in journalism from Columbia University. Previously to this book, he had released four as part of the Altered Space series. Uh, They're called Zero Phase, Apollo 13 on the Moon, Public Loneliness, Yuri Gagarin's Circumlunar Flight, Island of Clouds, the great 1972 Venus flyby, and Infinite Blues, a Cold War fever dream. So let's talk to Jerry. Okay,
0: we're off to a good start. Play Welcome back, Jerry, and thank you for joining us again. Now, Alone on the Moon discusses actual plans for a Soviet moon landing. So tell us what your research was like for the book and and what kind of books did you read to prepare to write for this?
2: This was a story I wanted to tell from um, basically as soon as I... Conceived of the altered space series, um, this was one of the ideas that I had as a as a what if, and I had actually read a book called uh, Peter Nevsky and the True Story of the Russian Moon Landing by John Calvin Batchelor years ago, and it's it's funny because sometimes I think you need to write a book because it's the book you want to read, and the book you want to read doesn't exist, and. You know, and that book was just very different than what I expected. It wasn't bad per se, but it was a prick, it was a picaresque novel, and it was very light on the details of the actual moon landing. And so I was kind of like, huh, like it's, it's weird that nobody's written that book yet, at least not that I know of. I mean, maybe there is one that I haven't uh, read yet. The biggest challenge for me was I wanted to write uh, about Boris Volinov His story was so intriguing to me and I was a little timid writing about him because some of the other people in the series, there's been a lot of documentation of their lives, um, at least a lot of English language documentation, certainly for, you know, working on Island of Clouds. I could read Buzz Aldrin's pre-sobriety and and get in the cranky buzz head anytime I wanted to kind of get in that headspace. I did some research and I I realized that uh, Bert uh, Vies had done some uh, interviews of of Volinov back in the 2000s. And, you know, I was able to get in touch with him via Francis French and was able to get some interviews. (laughs) And he kind of told me, like, you know, I don't know if you should write about Volinov because he's kind of a, you know, a little... uh, cranky pants or whatever (laughs) like to me that was kind of like oh yeah this is this is a good reason to write about him and um you know just reading this interview transcript you really realize what his career would have been like you know to be a backup for uh you know one of the early uh Vostok flights and think you were going and then not go like to be told like you know hey you're gonna fly and then that yanked away from you you know and just imagining what that would have been like just spending years years waiting for your shot you know in a country where people didn't have a lot and the people who who did get to fly were at this like demigod status you know and also i had a lot of trepidation um you know frankly because he's half jewish and i'm not jewish a friend of mine, an author I've published, this guy uh, Dmitry Samarov, here in Chicago. He's actually born in in the former Soviet Union to a, a family of Jewish descent. I was like, all right, well, at least this person has firsthand experience of you know the the Soviet Jewish experience. And I said, you know, what what novel should I read to really understand the 20th century Soviet Jewish experience? And He only recommended one book, uh, Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman, just riveting, like a a 20 war and peace um, written by a person who had firsthand experience of the Soviet Union. I mean, he was a war correspondent, basically. You know, you just saw how, like, living in that environment would, would fuel that suspicion that you might have, you know, and just that always kind of wondering when people are whispering, like, you know, are they talking about me? You know, is my career uh, (laughs) on the rocks because of, uh, you know, something I did or didn't do? And, uh, you know, I I felt like hopefully that was a good way to get into that headspace and and write that convincingly, so.
1: Obviously, Boris Volinoff was a real person and he's still alive, albeit very old. I'm wondering, do you ever worry about the reaction of the real people you place in your fictional stories?
2: That's an excellent question. Um, I probably panic less because this is somebody that's on another continent. And uh, <laughs> I'm probably, you know, hopefully isn't going to show up at my door. Um, but it's it's funny that you mentioned that because years ago, I was, I was sitting around in my office job and I saw that Ron Howard was doing a Reddit AMA. I asked him, uh, you know, do you write differently? When you're writing about living subjects versus deceased ones you know because there's obviously you know portrayals like in apollo 13 you could really uh you know take him to task for his portrayal of jack swigert versus uh fred hayes or or uh, jim lovell and he basically said that to him it was like most important to get ideas across rather than necessarily staying true to the to every uh, character detail, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting answer. But yeah, I, I feel a little more need to be faithful to the people, in part just because it's the constraint that makes for better art. I think if you're making up people, it's easy to create, you know, fantastic superheroes, you know, that do all the right things and say all the right things and they never make mistakes. I'd much rather have the constraints of, you know, dealing with somebody who was cranky at times, who had, you know, possibly some gripes about his career and how things had progressed or, uh, you know, interpersonal gripes and whatnot. You know, I'd I'd much rather have that realism because, you know, frankly, you know, astronauts are people, cosmonauts are people.
1: It definitely makes it more readable, that's for sure. From the opening page, you feel that. Thanks,
0: yeah. yeah, I felt like this is kind of an off topic, but I felt like, you know, just reading first pages, I was like, I can relate to this dude. Like, this guy feels like a real <laughs> person versus like a hero, you know, this, you know, I'm the greatest hero of all time. You know, I don't know. I loved it. Yeah. But to my question, a common theme in your in all of your work, not just Alone on the Moon, is uh, humans versus technology and humans versus, you know, natural phenomenon, like uh, things they really, you know, Things they can control versus things they can't control. And, yeah. you know, it makes me wonder, um, do you think other alternative histories were inspired by you? Like for all mankind, not saying they plagiarized from you, but they explore a lot of similar things. What do you think?
2: Um, well, it is one of the that is one of the natural conflicts, you know, like man versus nature, you know, human versus nature, um, human versus machine, it's pretty normal for people to organically uh, gravitate to certain topics. Those are the questions we grapple with, like throughout our, throughout our lives. Like how much of our, how much of our story do we write ourselves and how much of it is, you know, these constraints that are imposed on us by, you know, whatever you're, you know, you can call it God, you can call it the universe um, what have you, you know, and, and um, you know, is that a benevolent force? Is that a, Malevolent force? Is that a neutral force? You know, is that just something you have to deal with? And I think that's something everybody has to come to terms with in one way or another. But I think some authors are doing it just as an ego gratification exercise. So they're they're trying to escape the constraints. They're trying to escape, you know, the harsh realities of of space flight and stuff. When I was working on Island of Clouds, I had gotten in touch with some, some people had done some pretty heavy medical work for NASA and one of them said like there's things about the human body in deep space that we still don't know that we would know from this mission you know like we still don't know what's going to happen you know to a to a human body outside of the magnetosphere for a year it's fun to pretend that everything's going to be hunky-dory and and I certainly (laughs) want us to keep exploring space but you know we have to step into it and do the research, you know, which is one of the reasons I think I'm kind of disappointed that we haven't built a moon base by now, you know, like, I think, you know, to me, that's the next logical step for humans is to, to live there and, you know, see how well it works. And, you know, we're at least three days from home. So if anything did go wrong, we'd be able to get back. But, you know, like people are talking about putting a million people on Mars and it's like, you're asking a lot of people to sign up for a very uncertain proposition and let's take the intermediate steps first and make sure that that's uh, something people would even want to do, you know
1: Absolutely, so obviously in the songwriting world you have uh, a lot of people suing people for plagiarism uh, when when an idea is slightly similar, uh, we've had some big court cases in this country about that so you know, we're not going to see you suing for all mankind then uh, no <laughs>
2: No. One of my friends actually recommended that I get in touch with them about uh, writing some episodes.
1: uh, (laughs) That's a great idea. Yes. I approve of that sentiment. (laughs) Thank you. Obviously, that leads us on nicely to this question. What are your favourite alternate history books that can be space or non-space?
2: Oh, my gosh. I really enjoyed um, Harry Turtledove's Guns of the South. And I haven't read a lot of his other books, but it was... A Civil War story in which, you know, time travelers show up and give Robert E. Lee AK-47s before the Battle of the Wilderness. It sounds like really fantastic and absurd, but he did a really good job of like realistically portraying the personalities and realistically portraying their frustrations and stuff. It's kind of disturbing, but some people are writing this stuff just to fantasize a world of where the Confederacy wins or whatever. But he was really looking at some of the issues that that they would have faced, you know. And, um, you know, so I thought that was fantastic. And also um, the book, The Man in the High Castle, Philip K. Dick, I thought was phenomenal. It just did things very artistically. It, It leaves you wanting more. So it sketches out just enough of the world to kind of leave you wanting more rather than leave you wanting less. You know, you don't want to wade through this big, uh, impenetrable bog of text. Oh, and I should add, um, Fatherland, the Robert Harris book, I thought was fantastic. I read that, um, as a teenager. And I thought that was just, just a really chilling, um, chilling, uh, great read. Okay. So
0: in Alone on the Moon, um, <laughs> You killed two American space legends, uh, which you you also killed somebody really important, Island of Clouds as well. So I'm just wondering, for my own selfishness, was the, the vision Leonov had on the moon and Alone on the Moon in the book, was that real or is that open to our interpretation?
2: Um, Almost everything he says is open to interpretation in this book, and I think... You know, it's a book about not knowing, which I think we can relate to not having flown in space, you know, because I think we all do kind of wonder, yeah, like, you know, is it really all it's cracked up to be? Is it really, you know, what would I feel like standing on the moon, you know? So I I tried to write it so almost everything he says is kind of open to your interpretation. And uh, I was at Pitchfork selling books this past weekend. And I had this event where I went to a concert for The National, and my friends met the lead singer backstage. And I was convinced, I was convinced with like every fiber of my being, like 99.99% certainty that it had happened in February of 2012. And this person was telling me it was in December of 2011. So like only a three-month difference, but it had a big impact on my personal life and what was happening at the time. And like, I looked up, I mean, it was one of those, like, you know, Berenstain versus Berenstein moments where you feel <laughs> like you've quantum tunneled through to the alternate universe where it was like, like I looked up the the concert dates and like, sure enough, it was like December of 2011 that that the national played that venue and they didn't play in, in February, you know? So I, I just kind of love that, that notion of, you know, how real is my past? Like how, how real is my memory? Like did I, did I miss a step somewhere along the way or, or, uh, or is, is my memory just flawed, you know?
0: Yeah. I love that quality about the book cause I'm reading it. And part of me is like, I, I, you feel, I feel like I'm having a fever or something cause I'm like, is that, did that really happen or did he imagine it? And it's never really answered. Either you accept it happened or you didn't, I guess. I don't know. So yeah are we going to see more? And please say
2: yes. (laughs) I have no current plans to write more. I, I do have ideas that maybe I'll just throw out there because one of the things I would say that got me into the whole alternate history thing was my experience with space exploration in general was a, was a, was a great mix of, you know, tragedy and triumph. You know, like I saw the right stuff in the theaters in '83. I was so blown away. You know, I was, I was following in the Weekly Reader when Krista McAuliffe was getting ready to launch. I was like so invested in that. I still get goosebumps talking about it. But like I, like Challenger was the first, you know, world event that I could remember where I was and what happened, and I can still remember the principal, you know, coming on the intercom and and it was the first time I ever heard an adult, like at a loss for words, like, how do I explain this? Like this, this launch that you guys were all hyped up for, it went wrong and everybody's gone. You know, that's one of those stories that really forms your, your take on how the world works. Um, But the funny thing was we moved to Orlando In the summer of 87 so during the hiatus after challenger and i believe we saw the next launch like sts 26 we would we would go outside um from our classroom and and you know see the launches so um you know so yeah like my own personal story is this this mix of like you know tragedy and triumph so i think like you know there's part of me that does want to write an alternate challenger where the the mission succeeds you know um which i think would be possibly fun i don't know if i'm ready to do it yet but it might be something uh or it might be something you know somebody else can uh can try and uh i don't know yeah there was there was one other one but maybe i'm just maybe i'm just remembering uh your idea emily and, and hoping that <laughs> yeah yeah
0: so. i'm hoping to, i i need to just uh get scooting on uh Pretty much everything so yeah i'm behind on just about every damn thing right now so yeah i would love to write an alternative history i just need to buckle down and actually do it you know <laughs> that's what i need to do
2: I, I i eagerly
1: await one of the things that fascinated me with this book is the whole idea of just landing on the moon with one person and being there on your own which i think you did a really good job of conveying was that one of the key drivers into wanting to do this? Because that's something we don't have. We don't have an account of what it's like being on the moon on your own. Like, oh that's, yeah. that's crazy, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. When I, you know, when I started to read more about the, the N1 and the, you know, and the, the lunar craft and the mission profiles, like that was kind of a slow realization. And I had actually thought about, and I know somebody did a Gemini thing related to this, but I had actually thought about doing uh, you know, because there was a proposal to do a Gemini with a little rinky-dink lander. Um, so I thought <laughs> about rinky-dink. doing, you know, and I think some of the lines I ended up using were ones that had popped into my head uh, when writing that. But yeah, that was definitely a big part of the appeal. Was just, you know, yeah, if there's two people, you can, you know, you can't, you can't uh, BS at all, you know, because the other guy's going to call you out on it unless you're Unless you're a really uh, tight crew with a good sense of humor, you know, you got to kind of, you know, stick to what actually happened. But if it's just you, you know, you can uh...
1: (laughs) say what you want. And and, and did you draw upon any of the accounts of the command module pilots that were alone around the moon, although they didn't go on the moon? Did you draw on any of that? Because they're the only people that have been alone, so to speak, that far away from home.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah, I uh, I reread uh, Michael Collins. Uh, you know, and and he's um, I'm, you know, I'm not to toot my horn too much. He's a he's a fellow West Pointer, and um, I got to meet him at Space Fest in 2016, and he was just such a fantastic guy. I had read his book before that, but I definitely um, made it a point to read it again as part of this. His descriptions are just so lyrical and so economical and he just you know conveys those feelings so well that i wanted to treat myself by giving myself another read of that book
1: (laughs) where can people find this book jerry where where is a good place for people to go looking if they haven't read it yet
2: um well my my publishing company tortoise books um has a has a site and it's it's listed prominently on the site if you want to if you want to sign copies so look at uh tortoisebooks.com there's a where to buy page, um, or Amazon, or um, you know your local indie bookstore may have it, but you may have to order it. Or um, yeah, there's there's uh, plenty of options. Are there any audio versions of your books? Um, not mine yet. Audio versions are a little difficult to produce, but the the publishing company I run, Tortoise Books, we had one book that had an Audible deal. And one book that was done through another uh, audio thing. But yeah, I, mine uh, haven't been on audio yet.
1: Uh, I, would, I would very much enjoy that. They're great stories. Yeah. And I'd like someone to read them to me. Yes. <laughs> Jerry, thanks so much for joining us once again. Both the books of yours, which I've got, I haven't read the whole series. The two I've got, I wasn't able to put down once I started reading them. Oh, I think that's the, the ultimate praise you can give any book, right? Once you start, you can't stop. Um, so you. yeah, please, please do another one. And obviously, I need to go and check out the other ones. But I know it, it, there's no reason for you to stop. Why would you stop? You're clearly good at this.
2: Why did Why did Jerry Seinfeld stop after uh, season nine of Seinfeld? Like that was one of the best seasons. But you know, he wanted to, He didn't want go
1: to go out on a high. Yeah, I suppose yeah. there's always that, isn't there? Always, yeah. <laughs> there's always that. <laughs> anyway, Jerry, thank
2: you very much for joining Thanks us. This has so been much. great. Thank you, guys. This was fantastic, and uh, really enjoyed it. Beautiful view
0: out here. desolation. All right. We did a little bit of a chat with Jerry after the interview. And <laughs> I don't want to provide too many spoilers for his books here, but all I have to say is um, Jerry doesn't hold anything back when he <laughs> writes. <laughs> so um, I kindly asked him not to, not to kill an astronaut I really like in his next book. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Nobody is safe when Jerry's writing. Uh, Nobody's safe. Yeah, it's
0: dangerous, man. Very dangerous. Absolutely. No, but seriously, he's one of those writers. I hope he does another one. I remember the first time I read Island of Clouds and for those of you who haven't read it, it's not a small book and I literally could not put it down. Like I, I had to stay up that night. Is
1: that the Is that the Venus mission where it sends someone yes. up to Venus, right?
0: Yeah, The it, it's the crude uh, Venus mission. Uh, where they send sort of like a Skylab around Venus to do a, like a flyby. I could not put it down. I mean, I, I just, I had to finish it that night. His books are all like that. They don't always go the way you'd like them to, but that's part of the charm. Seriously, go get them. The
1: two I've read are, are so well researched without being bogged down in it. Does that make sense?
0: It's not pretentious, exactly. Yes,
1: exactly. It's still telling the story, but in a way that's... It's all believable because the research was done so well rather than throwing research in your face and make it unaccessible to people. I think that's what he does really well.
0: I think Alone on the Moon is honestly my favorite thus far. There's a lot going on in the book, not just, you know, in spaceflight, but just socially as well. And it it really is amazing, you know, and it's kind of a record of a. Kind of a bad time in the Soviet Union, you know. Yeah. For me, it was very illuminating because as an American, I don't know much about
1: that. Yeah, the way he writes the relationship between Boris and Alexei is amazing. It's it's so believable uh, and really like helps you understand those people better as well. Like That did for me anyway. I thought oh, I had to go and start looking things up because I was like, oh, oh it, was he really like that? Is that actually a thing? And it, it brought out curiosities in me, which I hadn't previously explored, which was great.
0: Yeah, exactly. That That's another thing I liked about it was I you really can believe it in the book that it's actually something happening. Yes. I've read some fiction books before and I'm like, nah, this doesn't seem plausible that this might happen. You know, there were some moments like I'm going to get torn up for this. There were some moments in the first season of For All Mankind where I was like, I don't believe this. This isn't true to the character. Yeah, I love the show, but there were still a couple moments where I was like, I don't know if this would have happened in real life, but with his books, you can completely believe, you know, okay, this would have actually probably taken place back then.
1: Yeah, for sure. And as always, you can watch that full interview with Jerry, uh, unedited, on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things.
0: We have no intention of competing with the professionals,
1: believe me. Right, since Emily and I last recorded, there have been just three launches. Two from Kennedy Space Center and one from China. As always, you can find out the details of payloads and watch videos, if they're available, uh, on our show notes, which you can find on SpaceAndThingsPodcast.com. One of the Kennedy Space Center launches included the 25th SpaceX cargo mission to the International Space Station. A nice milestone for them this week.
0: Yeah, I saw the first one. So Uh, that is Nice. Yes! So that's crazy to me. I'm like, where is time going? Yeah. All right. It's been a while since we reported on anything to do with Russia in any detail, but there have been some big stories this last week. Uh, Shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, the European Space Agency suspended Russian participation in the ExoMars mission. After a meeting on July 12th, the ESA Council has announced that this suspension is now full cancellation of the partnership. Um, We're recording this on July 19th and a full media briefing is taking place. Uh, on wednesday uh, july 20th in which ISA will provide insights on the way forward with other partners so by the time this podcast is published you might know more than we do right now if there has been an update then dave will put something in the show notes yeah
1: i will do in other russian news the controversial leader of roscomos dmitry Rogozin, has been ousted from his position by vladimir putin and Putin has put the Deputy Prime Minister, Yuri Borisov, in charge. It's currently unclear how the appointment will affect things going forward, but this caught me by surprise. Uh, on the same day, NASA announced that it had signed a deal with Roscosmos to exchange seats on craft travelling to and from the International Space Station. The first cosmonaut to fly on a SpaceX Dragon will be Anna Kikina, who will fly on Crew 5, scheduled for this September. This has been in the works for a while, but now it's all official and signed off. And, of course, we can only speculate at the timing of these announcements. It's pretty pretty bizarre that it happened on the same day. But I, I, yeah. I don't know what to make of this. There's, there's rumors that uh, Rogozin is going to become Putin's chief of staff, so I don't know if that's a promotion or, or what, but it's uh, it's very odd. He's been a very strange character this last year.
0: Yeah, he's been very uh, vocal on Twitter as well. I guess we'll see what, uh, what unfolds. Meanwhile, after last week's historic photos were presented to the world by NASA from the James Webb Space Telescope, NASA has announced that damage from the space rocks has exceeded expectations, and they're currently unsure as to whether this will affect the life of the satellite. Uh, we've reported that the telescope had been struck by a meteoroid between 22nd and 24th of May, but the images have finally been released showing how much damage it has caused to one of the 18 hexagonal mirrors. While this impact hasn't had too great of an effect on Webb, the fact that it's already had damage worse than predicted is of course worrying. The telescope has enough fuel to last for 20 years. Let's hope it can be effective for its full lifespan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So Virgin Galactic has opened a new spaceship factory in Arizona, capable of producing up to six spaceships per year. They're expecting the factory to become fully operational in 2023, as the company is aiming to try and launch up to 400 suborbital missions per year. The announcement comes just after a year since the company's first fully crewed flight, which included founder Richard Branson. I'm sure you'll remember that. They've not flown since then, as they've been performing upgrades on their current spacecraft, Unity, and carrier plane, EVE. Uh, A ticket to fly currently costs $450,000, and apparently there are 800 people on the waiting list. Pretty crazy. Uh, The next flight is currently scheduled for early 2023.
0: Yeah, let me get out my my credit card and try to <laughs> buy one of those tickets. Yeah, I don't have any credit card with near enough. I don't want people to hear this. Emily's got that Monday? like, no, yeah. I don't have anywhere near that much. Oh, my God. And speaking of money, <laughs> on July 26, uh, Sotheby's will be auctioning some personal items of Buzz Aldrin, including some objects flown on his two space flights, Gemini 12 and Apollo 11. A law was passed in 2012 which confirmed that Apollo-era astronauts retained title of the space-flown equipment they kept as mementos. Um, Among the items in the sale is the felt-tip pen, which Aldrin used to fix the broken circuit breaker switch, which meant the Eagle could take off from the moon. Uh, Paired together in a lot with the plastic nib of the broken circuit breaker, this is expected to sell for about $1-2 to million dollars. Uh, if you've been saving your pennies, that might be a neat purchase. <laughs> so also up for grabs is the white jacket, which Aldrin wore during the Apollo 11 mission when he wasn't wearing his spacesuit. Um, You probably saw it a lot during the Apollo 11 movie. So these are some iconic items, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that pen. He, he donated it to the, the touring Apollo 11 exhibit that went around the U.S., uh, and, and that was on display when I, when I saw the, the Apollo 11 command module uh, back in 2019. Uh, so I'm pleased to say I've seen it, but who knows who are going to get these, whether they're going to go on display again, whether they'll end up in a museum. I've seen comments underneath these articles that said, that belongs in a museum, the Indiana Jones meme.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah no, I think that's fair, but at the end of the day, they are his to do what he w- wants with and uh, he's got to look out for his family going forward, I guess. Yeah.
0: We'll see. We'll see who gets them.
1: Loads so. of great items up for up for grabs there, though. So uh, yeah, if you can afford a flight on um, on Virgin <laughs> Galactic, then uh, yeah. you can probably also check out the Suburbia Sotheby, website. I couldn't even figure out how to sign up properly earlier. So uh, yeah, maybe you need money to. Sign I didn't up. even.
0: <laughs> I did not even sign up. I just saw the price. I was like, nope, yeah. that is no. Nope, I'm, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'll just look at them. I'll yeah, just absolutely. look at them. Uh, Roger, our guidance recommendation.
2: Uh... Roger, understand. We're number one on the runway. Roger.
0: That's it for this week. Next week is our 100th show, um, which is crazy. We hope you've enjoyed the first 99. <laughs> uh, we always encourage you to get in contact. And our chief meme officer, Todd, got in contact last week with his thoughts on the Jane Webb photos. He said, for every telescope aimed towards space, 10 are aimed at earth think about how much more we would see if we spied on the universe instead of our neighbors
1: yeah Uh, that one's really got me thinking when he sent me that i was like oh interesting although obviously a lot of our telescopes pointing at the earth aren't spying on us but still
0: but there's still a lot of them spying yeah yeah. us. (laughs) still 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 too many
1: right (laughs) more than i would like absolutely right so don't forget in space no one can hear you stream Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.